father's lightsaber. What? Lightsabers, precious? Hello, and welcome to What's Lightsabers Precious? The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars Encyclopodcast, where we waste time on fictional wikis. I'm Ryan. And I'm Joanna. And as you can probably hear, I'm sick again. Just constant disease around this place. Yeah, well, you know, we live in Detroit, which is just, just festering pestilential squalor at all times. Open wound of a city. All the awful from the meatpacking plants is just running down the streets. and It's lined with the pus of the auto industry. The pus, all that pus that they use in manufacturing cars. Well, you've seen the movie Cars. They got like mouths in there. So so ipso facto, they must have pus. Yes. Those cars are full of pus. They're so fast. Pixar tried to hide the truth from you. Not just pus, but guts and blood and organs and bones and eyeballs and tongues. How do they reproduce? That's what I want to know. Joanna, you always give me a hard time. Now you're the one doing it here, okay? Because whenever we talk about the movie Cars, (laughs) I go like, Joanna, how does the Cars world work? And I start going down this this rabbit hole of questions about (laughs) how Cars as a universe exists. And now you're the one doing it to me. Yeah, but... How does it feel? Does it feel good? (laughs) feels great because the thing is i suddenly realized i could force you to talk about how cars do it i don't want to do it right now <laughs> okay this is not a cars podcast it's this is not, not car talk it's not where, where you <laughs> normally go when you want to hear about cars doing it well click and clack the tappet brothers talk about the ramifications of a car-based world <laughs> where the cars run everything and they don't even have hands how do they build everything how do they exist where do they eat how do they drive? How are they constructing their world? How Who paves the roads? I want to know everything about the Cars world, but that's not what our podcast is about. No, it's about Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. Do you have any Lord of the Rings news? I don't. Do you have any Star Wars news? I do. All right, let's hear it. Uh, so I, a couple episodes ago, maybe more than a couple, it was like a month or two ago, uh, I said that Disney had copyrighted the title Star Wars Resistance. Yes. And this is right after the Rebels cartoon ended. So I was like, this is going to be the new show probably. Well, that's what I thought. And it is for sure now. All right. They announced the show. It's doesn't have much out about it yet. It's going to be set be- between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. And it's going to have Poe Dameron in it. And it's going to have <gasps> Captain Phasma in it. And it's oh, actually going to have uh, Oscar Isaacs and Gwendolyn Christie doing their voices. For real? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And they say it's going to be about like the scrappy pilots of the Resistance. And it's going to be apparently anime-inspired art style. Okay. It's like Teen uh, Titans or something. It's CGI. There's only one production still of it so far, but it looks kind of cool. I like I like the style of it. It's very like bright and colorful. Oh, it's kind of like cell shaded. Yeah. It looks like Wind Waker. Yeah, it looks like Wind Waker. Or, Could be I cool. think it might be good. I think it's gonna be cool. Uh, they say they're inspired by like World War II dogfighting serials, the same way George Lucas was inspired. All right, so it's gonna have like that original Star Wars feel. Yeah, but with a BB-8 in it. So I think it's gonna be cool. I don't know. All right, cool. Well, hopefully there'll be some Lord of the Rings news um, next month. Uh, or sorry, next week. I should be getting another package from the Tolkien Society pretty soon, or another newsletter at least. All right. So look forward to that. I'll let you know what goodies are inside. A finger of J.R.R. Tolkien. That would be amazing. A mummified fingernail. That's of how the they great could get. Author. Oh my God! That is how that they could get more members. I mean, I know their membership is at like an all-time high. It's almost fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. But if they wanted to get more members, they could be like you know. Of all the members who joined this year, one of you is going to get J.R.R. Tolkien's finger in their welcome package, and you don't know who it's going to be, and the only way to find out is to join. It's his right index finger, which he used to type all the letter I's in the Lord of the Rings manuscript. Those are the best letters in that manuscript. All the best parts have I's. could not exist without that finger. And with it, you have a horcrux that can one day bring him back to life. (laughs) Yes, a finger. Join now, get a finger infested with J.R. Tolkien's soul. Yes. A mummified soul finger. Yes. The plan of the Tolkien Society will come to pass. We should start a rival society to the Tolkien Society where we offer something like that. I I mean, like, it'll obviously not be his finger because... I don't want to fly to England and get it. No. That's literally the only logistical reason why we can't give his finger no, to gray, people. Grave robbing's fine. It's all the travel logistics that <laughs> travel. I don't have any frequent flyer miles saved up. But no, we should definitely, you know, we'll use somebody else's finger. <laughs> what do you have to teach us about Lord of the Rings today? We're going to talk about dwarves. Dwarfs. I really like dwarves. Do you yeah. like dwarves? Oh, I love the dwarf. Yeah? Was you... it, um, 
was it when we played Lotro that like when you play the Hobbit, you could be a male or female Hobbit. Or when you play the human, you could be a male or female human. But like when it was dwarfs, it was the, the gender was just dwarf. <laughs> was that the game? I don't know. I don't remember. Was that the case? There's one game. I think it was that one. Yeah, because it was like just you. Just dwarf, like it was just. I mean, there are dwarf women, but maybe they were just trying to say you can't like tell the difference between the bears. They're indistinguishable. I thought that was super funny. So again. that is so really yes. funny if that's true. To answer your question. Yes, I love a dwarf. <coughs> Good. Do you remember how dwarves came to be? Ole the smith made them. Yes. And he, they were sleeping, and they got woken up a little early in accident, and they oh crap, they put them back to sleep again. Yes. Well, he made them, and then but he couldn't give them life. Only a luvatar can give them life. Right? Yeah. And Luvatar's like, what are you? doing Mm -hmm. like you can't do this and they were going to be destroyed right um but then Allie couldn't go through with it because they looked so cute and scared all huddled together and so he just put them to sleep until after the elves woke up and there were get this originally seven of the dwarves i mean there's a joke that's very obvious here that i could make but you're not going to because you're better than that Joking about joking about sending J.R.R. Tolkien's mummified finger in the mail. That's fine. Listen, Joanna, Making a Disney joke, though, that's beyond the pale. I have standards. Yeah, okay. I mean, so does radio. So, All right. let's try to meet them. Yeah. But yeah, no, so these, these seven dwarves were known as the seven fathers. Maybe there were some other, I mean, presumably there had to be some female ones in there, but maybe it's another thing where it's like, hey, you know, like, indistinguishable. So... Auli made the dwarves at a time when the world outside of Arda was still suffering under the the rule of Morgoth. Right. And so he intentionally made them tailor-made to withstand Morgoth. So he made them really sturdy. He made them really hardy so that they could survive the dangers and hardships of the age. Mm -hmm. Which is why they're not made to be pretty. They're just made to be, like, almost indestructible. They're like little tanks. He also made them short so that Morgoth's swings would go right over their heads. Yeah, exactly. Or Morgoth would just, like, miss them entirely. Because they only oh, go right to way too small. I didn't see you down there. I swung my sword and my, and my armor doesn't allow my sword to go any shorter than this. <laughs> Blast! Foiled again! I could get on my knees, but that's very uncomfortable. Plus, he probably benched so much that, like, he couldn't even bend his arms anymore. Oh, yeah, it's like those guys get really ripped. Right? That happened to my friend's boyfriend one time. He's like, yeah. do you think I need to, like, work out on my arms? She's like, dude, you can't even, like, bend them when we're cooking. What are you doing? Oh my god. <laughs> anyway, like Owly, their maker, the dwarves were really into smithcraft and stoneworking and mining and working metals. I learned it from you, Dad. I learned it from watching you. Except it's a good thing. Because yeah. they can make all kinds of stuff. And sell it and get lots of money. Now, the dwarves sort of kept to themselves. And their language, Kuzdul, was a closely guarded secret. Now, at some point, I said their language was called Kazad after the Dwarvish word for dwarf. Close but no cigar. Not Kazad. Kuzdul. My bad. Well, I forgive you this time. All right. But next time. Divorce. Divorce. <laughs> Not even just kicking me off the podcast. You're going to kick me out of the marriage. Two birds, one stone. Well, wait right? till you hear this. Wait till you hear this. Yeah. Um. Last time, last episode, I accidentally said Sauron one time when I met Saruman. Well. That, I mean, I think it was pretty obvious what I meant, but still. I think everyone does that at least once in their life. I mean, in fairness, like, why did he make their names so close? Why did he make them so similar? To align them, I guess, name-wise. That might be why. I mean. That's a good question. We'd have to ask his cursed finger. Because they both love dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, their language, Kuzdul, was a secret, and they told their true dwarvish names to none but themselves. Oh, really? Yeah. So basically, all the dwarf names in Tolkien are in the tongues of elves or men, and they're not the true dwarvish names. So for all we know, Gimli's true name was Brian or something. They're we have like, no idea. I like idea. how they just only told each other, like, psst, don't tell anyone. My name's Jeff. <laughs> it's, a, it's a secret. If those elves find out my name is Jeff, it's over. It's over. <laughs> dead to me. Dead to me. Dead to me. These dwarves, who may or may not have been called Brian or Jeff, <laughs> slept through many ages until after the elves woke up. And the vast majority of the dwarves in Tolkien are descended from the oldest of these seven sleeping dwarves, mm-hmm. uh, Durin the Deathless. I'm sure you've heard of. And Durin means one who sleeps because dude was napping for a super long time. Now, is that his true name or is that his elvish name? That would be his elvish name. Oh, We man. don't know. Well, it was his true name. Sleepy. We don't know. Sleepy. Sleep. <laughs> Doc. Again, I went there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Ryan, you said you had standards. I, I broke the seal. You <laughs> did. So he awoke at Mount Gundabad in the northern Misty Mountains. Mm-hmm. To more of the fathers, the unnamed ancestors of the Firebeard and Broadbeam clans, 
were placed by Allie in the Blue Mountains, where they presumably founded these two fortresses that we're going to talk about in a second. Okay. The other fathers awoke in pairs in two other locations, a thousand miles or more to the east of the Misty Mountains, which means they don't really come into the story that much. Uh, I like how he made, he let, he let them wake up in pairs, which I feel like just adds more credence to my theory that there were probably some dwarf mothers in there too. Yeah, they're breeding pairs. But not, not <laughs> just produced through mitosis or something. Yeah. God only knows. But let's talk chronology here for a second. So we have to assume that Durin woke up shortly after the awakening of the elves at Quivianen. Because um, the elves woke up approximately 4,300 years before the first rising of the sun. So presumably the first dwarves would have followed shortly afterward. Right. So they were there before the first age, long before the first age, which means long before men. Mm-hmm. A little bit about the various dwarvish settlements here. So not long past, after their awakening, before Durin the Deathless, eldest of the fathers, founded Khazad-dûm, which was later called Moria. Oh, okay. Right, Khazad-dûm. So he founded this in the Misty Mountains, as we know. This took place about 2,400 years before the rising of the sun, so still before the First Age. During the time when Morgoth was all chained up in Valinor. Right. So it was safe for the dwarves to walk about and found settlements. Sure. And this was the grandest and most famous of the mansions of the dwarves ever. Not just initially, but like ever. Of all time. Of all time. It's an all-timer. It, it lay in the central part of the Misty Mountains, and it was tunneled and carved through living rock and the mountains themselves, so that a traveler could pass through it from the West Range to the East. And I was thinking about this. There probably, there must be an example somewhere of an ancient, like, pre-industrial society where they tunnel through a mountain. There must be. Somewhere. But I don't know what it would be. We haven't found them yet. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe all evidence is... I don't know. We'll do some research. I'm sure there's something. There's gotta be, right? But I couldn't think of like an easy way of doing it without dynamite, which I think is what they use now. Well, the Egyptians would carve some of their monuments into the sides of mountains. like that's Into the side, but not all the way through. I just wonder. Like, I just wonder. Want, we, like, we have to want, look it up. want a straight tunnel from one side to the other. Yes. Sans dynamite. What I'm saying is that I think the dwarves were kind of impressive. Yeah, This yeah. is just, you know, a testament to dwarvish craftsmanship. Uh, yeah, it's a good thing they're real, too. <laughs> yeah, it's a good thing that they... You know what? I think they were the ones that probably taught ancient people to do that ancient aliens i think they probably taught them to make the pyramids too orbs you thought it was ancient aliens no it was dwarves take that Giorgio sukalos <laughs> i'm not saying it was dwarves but it was dwarves <laughs> so as the millennia passed the descendants of durin sat upon the throne of Khazad-dûm, and this city became famous throughout the entire world and even as a passing mention in quinta silmarillion the tale of the elf lords and their wars far to the west um even though the elves had not seen Khazad-dûm, Moria, uh, it was just like a distant rumor that they, they heard tell of it from the dwarves of the Blue Mountains. Gotcha. So for all they knew, it was like semi-legendary. Eventually, um, Sauron attacked. Moria. Mo- or well, Khazad-dûm. Yeah, Khazad-dûm. Uh, but the dwarves managed to drive him back. And they continued to thrive. Much of the great wealth of Khazad-dûm was based on Mithril that was found Mithril. in the mines. So that little shirt that Frodo had, that cute little number, yeah. made from Mithril. We mined this shirt out of a mountain. <laughs> they, just, they just carved the... They were like tapping like the shirt fell out. Perfect. It's like, I found a gem. I found a shirt. <laughs> I got some socks. Yeah, yeah. I just have one. Blast! I got some digging for the other one. Boots, boots. (laughs) A beer helmet. (laughs) As the centuries passed, the dwarves had to mine deeper and deeper for the precious metal. As happens. Oh, I see where this is going. Do you? Are they going to dig too deep? They uh, they dig they dug too deep. Are they like Phil Collins? Are they in too deep? They, I, I was going to say it was like that pop punk song. It's like, cause I'm in too deep and I'm trying to keep. Yeah, that's much better. Yeah. That's more, that's more relevant. I think that's more relevant to today's youth. Yeah. You're going to remember that song. So in the year, the 1980 of the Second Age, the dwarves did, back came out, did get in too deep. Okay. <laughs> and they unleashed a nameless terror from the depths beneath the city. I thought that was a very Lovecraftian way of putting it. Yeah, that's it. cool. Do we know what it is? Like what the nameless terror was? It was a, a Walrog. Ooh. Yes. So it actually did have a name, but just not to them. They didn't okay. know. They didn't know. They weren't fighting the wars with the elves in the West. The elves in the West, yeah, they'd seen Balrogs. Mm-hmm. The dwarves were like, what the hell is this? I was just looking for more shirts. And I found this demon. This nameless horror. demon with a whip? Like, what is going on? 
So this creature wreaked dreadful destruction, killed their king, who was Durin the Sixth, and became known as Durin's Bane. And in the following year, Durin's son Nain was also lost, and the dwarves got the hint and they fled Khazad-dûm. Now, is that Balrog the same one that pulls Gandalf into a mountain under the world? I think or we can presume it is. That's cool. Yeah, Balrogs aren't going to die. They're like. That's been around yeah, forever. Immortal. So, so Durin's Bane is his name? Durin's Bane. Well, I mean, yeah, that's what they call him because he killed Durin. Well, that's but, a good name. You should use it. Yeah, Durin's... Okay, we'll call the Balrog Durin's Bane from now on. Yeah. First name Durin, last name Spain. Middle name Danger. <laughs> so, yeah, so after millennia as one of the richest cities in Middle-earth, Khazad-dûm was now completely empty and abandoned, except for the brooding menace, as this article puts it. Ooh, yikes. Of Durin's Bane. And so, instead of calling it Casa Doom now, they were calling it Moria, the Black Pit. That's a lot less of a, of a mighty name, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, no. It's, uh, it's pretty bleak. But, let's talk about some other settlements. Now, the dwarves didn't have any settlement in Beleriand itself. You remember Beleriand was where, like, the elves and some right. of the men lived? But, they did build these two mighty citadels in the Blue Mountains, which were on the eastern border of Beleriand. And the citadels were called Belagost and Nograd. And it should be noted that after Beleriand vanished and the coastline of Middle-earth moved inland, the Blue Mountains were in the absolute northwest. Um, they were practically coastal. Okay. So if you look at the Blue Mountains on the map of the First Age, uh, Middle-earth, that'll give you a good delineation of how much land was lost. Gotcha. So they became beach dwarves. They became... Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. They're working on their tan. I don't know if it was that close to the coast, but... Much later, they built a settlement in Erebor. Okay, sure. The Lonely Mountain. And the dwarves had lived in mind in that general area since uh, the Second Age, but it wasn't until the mid-Third Age that the colony became an established kingdom of the Longbeards. Uh, this was after the fall of Khazad-dûm, a.k.a. Moria. Mm-hmm. So the survivors from Moria, under King Thrain I, uh, all went to the Lonely Mountain, and the colony ended up becoming the ancestral home of the king under the mountain. Sure, I know that guy. You know that guy. By the Third Age, 1999... Oh, yeah, good year. <laughs> Y2K <laughs> was on the way. That's when Willennium came out, <laughs> which is my favorite album of all time. Hold up, it is. <laughs> uh, so it became a dwarven stronghold, and the dwarves were a numerous and prosperous people. And this was when they started becoming super rich, and they amassed a large amount of not 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 mithril so much anymore, but gold and treasure and a jewel known as the Arkenstone. Oh yeah, that white jewel that Thorin Oakenshield is so hot to get his hands on in the Hobbit. The dragon sickness. Yes, exactly. So Thrain I used the Arkenstone as a symbol of his rule, and so did his sons and grandsons. The dwarves kept expanding this kingdom until they reached the Grey Mountains, but unfortunately, the Grey Mountains were full of a crap ton of dragons, as we discussed in the Oops All Dragons episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And eventually one of them killed the dwarvish king, Dane. And at that point, the new king, Thror, was like, we need to get away from these dragons, where's some place we can go where we'll definitely be free from dragons forever? Space. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually, you know, but then eventually Morgoth would He's going to float there. around. Yeah, they could you know? the, the first dwarf They go out there and he's like, what are you doing up here? They, yeah, they're living in peace for like years and years and all of a sudden there's this banging on the window. And they're like, are you kidding me? Okay, all the way up here? <laughs> yeah. No, so Thror decided to go to Erebor and reestablish the kingdom under the mountain. Yeah. Great choice, Thror. Uh, Thror was Thorin's grandfather, by the way. Okay. Just to give you some chronology there. Sure. So he and his followers recreated the kingdom under the mountain, and no dragons ever bother them again! I'm JK, so LOL! It's a happy ending. Yeah, happy ending. No, JK. I mean, I don't need to recount, like, what happened there, right? Everybody knows that Smaug, the great and terrible, did eventually come to Erebor in search of the treasure, and destroyed it, and killed a bunch of dwarves, and they I mean, had to flee. Would you say Thror kind of led the dragons there? Unintentionally, because they fled from them. Having the Arkenstone, I mean, just having the Arkenstone and all that treasure amassed there is what attracted Smaug. Sure. I imagine those dwarves are kind of bragging about it. Too. We're going back to our mountain. Oh, yeah, they're not known for their humility. Yeah, like, they're probably like, up, in, up in the dragon's faces, and Smaug's like, I see an opportunity right in front of me. Oh, fee, 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 fee. I smell the blood of Gold. a guy who's super loaded. <laughs> There's no way to make that rhyme. But blood anyway. in the water. Yes. 
All right, let's talk about dwarves and their relationship with elves. Well, I know they don't like each other. Well, okay, so this is interesting. So for the elves dwelling in Beleriand, the first appearance of the dwarves in the Blue Mountains was what the Encyclopedia of Art calls a startling revelation. Because until that time, the elves had thought themselves the only speaking peoples in the world. So just imagine elves running into dwarves for the first time, these squat, hairy little beings that sort of spoke like them and walked like them, but didn't prance or condition their hair like them. Oh, man. And literally no one warned them about it. They must have been like, what the hell? Yeah, like aliens like, to them. Like, what? Right? Aluvatar, like, what is this? Furthermore, ancient aliens are dwarves things. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they were like the equivalent of Neanderthals. All oh, these little guys. When you think about the relationship between elves and dwarves, as you just said, you usually characterize it as antagonistic. Yeah. But actually, early on, they got on like gangbusters. Well, not like gangbusters, oh. but pretty well. They have a pretty good working relationship. So it was like, we got a little brother now. Kind it's of. It's a dwarf. And in particular, and this will make sense when I explain it, the dwarves got along really well with the Noldor. And this is because, remember how during their time in Valinor, the Noldor flocked to Auli and they spent a lot of time learning his crafts? Sure, sure, sure. And Auli created the dwarves, and the dwarves were also into handicrafts, so obviously they thought Auli was pretty swell, and so they and the Noldor just clicked. Mutual interest right there. Exactly! Exactly! Like, the Noldor showed them how to craft, like, swords and, and, and jewelry, and the dwarves were like, wow, we like doing that stuff too, that's awesome, and then the dwarves showed them how to craft, like, giant hammers for hating people people and the elves are like oh my god we're digging that I mean, that's, they say that's the best way to make friends is just to go to like a, a place you have a like hobby with them and like that's a, essentially do it, what a they class did. or a club or it's like how you know older people sometimes go to war reenactment groups yeah and, i mean yeah that's basically what they were doing yeah this is kind of just an interesting side note of the elves of balerion though it was not a noldor but a cinder and elf who became the most trusted and respected of the dwarves oh. and the cinder and elf is someone you would have heard of before although you might not remember his name his name was aeol he was a dark elf. He had a son, an incel son called Maeglin. Oh, yeah, I remember Maeglin. Maeglin, who had a crush on his cousin. Yes. And led to the fall of Gondolin. I do remember Maeglin, yeah. So Aeol was, for some reason, the one they decided to trust. <laughs> Their taste is a little bit suspect, but... Yeah. But apparently they found him very upfront and... Straightforward, straight straightforward. shooter. I mean, he was, a straight, he was certainly a straight shooter. Now, Aeol... He, he shot a poison arrow straight at his son, so... Now, Aeol, his name... Does that also imply horses? No, I'm so sorry I told you that because now every time there's an EO, you're going to think. horses. Horses. No, it doesn't. Okay. This is interesting. All right. So in the Second Age, Noldor, out of a place called Linden, founded a country of their own. And this country was by the western gates of Khazadum, later Ooh. to be called Moria. And so this very rare close friendship sprang up between the dwarves of that area and the elves of the new land. And that elvish land was called Eregion. Eregion's ruler, who had an awesome name, Celebrimbor. Celebrimbor, I love I it. Which I just love. Those elves helped to construct the famous magical gate that became known as the West Gate of Moria. And you can tell they're friends because to pass through that gate, you have to speak the elvish word for friend. Speak friend and enter because so we're best friends. Exactly. So basically, the, the dwar is like this monument to their interracial friendship, which is cute. I mean, that's really cute. Like. Friends for eternity, honesty, yeah. equality. We stick together through thick and thin. <laughs> Nobody's gonna get that reference. Watch Miami Connection. Please watch Miami Connection. It is a truly stunning film. It's about elves and dwarves. <laughs> no, it's not. It's about Taekwondo. Taekwondo. <laughs> so, uh, Celebrimbor liked the dwarves so much that he actually presented King Durin III with a ring of power. Whoa. That's how much they liked each other. I mean, they were tight. And Celebrimbor was actually the one who made the 19 rings of power. So he made three for the elves, seven for the dwarves, nine for men. And then, of course, we know the 20th ring, a secret one, was forged by Sauron. Okay. The friendship of Khazad-dûm and Eregion, though, came to a screeching halt. Once, I remember, you remember I said Sauron came and, and overran it for yeah, a while? Yeah. So he overran Eregion, and he pushed all the elves out and killed them. And the dwarves in Khazad-dûm were like, uh, nope, and they just sealed the doors and hid inside. Oh, I see. Okay. That's so, not such a nice end to their nice friendship. Now, quick question. Yes. You say a ring of power. We well, you know what? We I, I, I never really thought about what the other rings of power do. Like, we know that Sauron's turns a hobbit invisible. 
<laughs> yeah, just stop. No, anybody. But. And it makes uh, a big eye look at you. What did the other rings of power do? Like, what did that dwarf ring of power do? So one universal power that all of the rings had was that for a mortal, they would be granted a lifespan far beyond their natural one. Far, 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 far beyond their natural one. Is that why Gollum lived so long? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that's exactly why. So just giving you, like, a very, very, very unnaturally long lifespan. Also boosting your strength. Probably boosting your stam. Yeah, you know, probably your... Four stam, four strength, leather belt. <laughs> your dex goes... Uh... Your dex goes to your int. Yeah. So, so he gave one of those to the dwarves. As I said, the dwarves and the elves early on really got along a lot better than they would later. However, there were certain hints that tensions would later arise. Mm -hmm. For example, well, for example, the dwarves shutting the doors of Casa Doom and just like turtling inside and not really helping out their elvish buddies. Kind of throwing their buds under the bus. But also, the elvish name for dwarves is Naugrim, which means the stunted people. Oof. So that's rather dickish. Yeah, that's not nice. Well, but yeah. They're just, they can't help it. They were made that they way. Know, they were just made. They were born this way, baby. And they have a purpose to be that way, okay? Yes. Elves. However, ultimately... The trigger that changed the relationship between elves and dwarves forever was the murder of Thingol. Oh, no. Remember Thingol of Doriath? Yes, there's Thingol and Fingol and even Abs and... (laughs) Thingol was Luthien's dad. Right. Thingol asked for a Silmaril from Baron to be the bride price for Luthien. And he did it. Right. And once he got this Silmaril... He sent it to the dwarves of Nogrod, the, mm. one of the fortresses in the Blue Mountains, and he asked them to make a piece of jewelry out of it. And the dwarves saw the Silmaril, and they were immediately like, hey and they just decided to keep it. I mean, yeah, it's a Silmaril. Yes. So when Thingol attempted to recover it, the dwarves killed him and then were slain in turn. So he's like the Franz Ferdinand of the... <laughs> yeah, he is the Archduke, The literally. Archduke who started this whole conflict. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And after that, there was just this deep level of mutual distrust between the races. There was occasional thawing of the relationship, um, Aregian and Moria being, you know, that example, one of the examples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As seen in the carving on the doors about how good of friends they were. But basically, there was just mutual racism on both sides. And I've tried that. to snowballed over time right they probably like that one i mean they could just talked about it they could have just like sat down and like had a word and, but they didn't until until like Alice and gimli they're the race ambassadors those race two. ambassadors i like to think that the relationship between elves and dwarves got better after that i mean i like are, to think they are supposed to be both like the the best of their people right yes exactly. so now dwarves and death this is you know just a short little section here though they live much longer than men they usually live around 250 years Dwarves are mortal creatures, but what happens after their death is kind of a mystery. They go go to the Valhalla. Well, uh, maybe. That would seem fitting. The elves have said that the dwarves return to the stone from which they were made. Okay. Originally by Auli. But the dwarves have a different belief. According to the dwarvish belief, they are gathered by Auli, the smith, who they call Mahal, in a part of the Halls of Mandos set aside specifically for them. Oh. And then, after the world and the last battle, you know, after everything's destroyed... Ragnarok. Yeah, basically Ragnarok, yeah. They're going to help Ali rebuild the world. Very cool. That's the dwarvish legend. One more thing. So I said that pretty much all the dwarves in Tolkien are descended from Durin, the eldest of the seven sleeping dwarves. Yes. The eldest of the seven fathers. However, there's also this thing called petty dwarves. Oh, yeah. Those guys are such jerks. Just Throwing like... shade constantly. God. No, they're, so they are a small stunted people, apparently related to what is called, quote-unquote, true dwarves. They died out in Middle-earth during the First Age. One example of a petty dwarf is Mim in the story of Turin Turum. Oh, I remember Mim. Remember? So Old jerk. He was, he was basically so racist against Turin Turumbar's elf friend that he got some orcs to come capture everybody and right. kill everybody. And yeah, it was just this Mim. big debacle. Yeah, he was a jerk. He was so petty. Yeah, he was indeed a petty individual. He was actually the very last petty dwarf. Good riddance. Ever. Because he outlived both of his sons. Okay. Uh, and if that's the way all the petty dwarves ended, then, I mean, I mean acted, then a good, yeah, good riddance. Um, all any of us can say for sure about the origins of the petty dwarves is what the Silmaril tells us, which says they, quote, came of dwarves that were banished in ancient days from the great dwarf cities of the east. 
precisely which cities they were banished from or why? Question mark. Maybe they're just banished for being petty. Tax evasion. <laughs> it was definitely tax evasion. Pulling the tags off mattresses. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty Parking crimes. in fire lanes, yeah. <laughs> jaywalking. Yeah, absolutely. So we... Um, there's there's a note here that says that it's not impossible that the first ancestors of this uh, stunted race lived among the glories of old Casa Doom. That sounds pretty speculative to me. Right. Take that as you will. Oh, wow. And that's what I have to say about dwarves. I had no idea there was offshoots of dwarves. And... Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, they died out a really long time ago, and apparently they were jerks. Dwarves are great. Dwarves are great. Would you say dwarves are your favorite race of Middle-earth? Oh, I think the they're, elves? All good. they're all good. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I know I'm into my elves. Yes. But dwarves are just, they're good, you know? Do you, you, you have a favorite dwarf my, in all of Tolkien? A favorite dwarf in all of Tolkien? Oh, my God. I mean, you get the most characterization for Gimli. Right. So it pretty much has to be Gimli. Right. I mean, I like what a, what a little petty little jerk Mim is. Mim is, kind of, Mim is fun. That's kind of entertaining. But no, it doesn't. It, yeah, it has to be Gimli, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess the dwarves and the hobbit don't really get a lot they of characterization. They don't get a ton. They're, they're basically color-coded in that book. Yes, they are. They are, especially in the book. In the movies, I feel like Peter Jackson really did try to give them um, individual personalities. Like, I would I wouldn't have... Thought going into the movie is like, oh, I really like Bofer. Yeah, like, oh, Bofer was such a stand-up dude though in the I first know. movie. He got a cool hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I thought Bomber was funny in the books, but like his sole characterization is basically like, you know, he's fat and messes up a lot. <laughs> he's <laughs> the fat kid. He's the fat one. So no, yeah, of course it has to be Gimli. Gotta be Gims. Gotta be Gims. Gimlets. Gims and Mims, huh? Gims and Mims. All right. That's what I have to say. But I understand that you have something to tell me about another rather diminutive people. Yeah, we've talked about some little people in Star Wars before. We've talked about Ewoks. We've talked about Ugnaughts. Yes. We're talking about another kind of little people who also like finding things. We're talking about Jawas. Now, it seems like there's almost more small people in Star Wars than there are human-sized people. So isn't it more accurate to say that humans are just really big people? Well, actually, there's a lot more human-sized people. Than oh, there are. is? I mean, well, think about all the races you see in Star Wars. Okay, so we just end up talking about the little ones a lot. I just like the little ones. Can you tell? I like the little ones, too. They're fun. I don't know. I think there's just. I, I think <coughs> it's just thematic. Unfortunately, now I'm out of little races. By the time we start talking about hobbits, I'll have to find like, another one that's like... Real little. Real little. Yeah. You'll find one. It's I will. Okay. So Jawas, we know what Jawas, Joanna. I know that they're a little spooky looking. Yep, they got little hoods. Uh, you can never see their faces, you see them glowing eyes. Mm-hmm. They make funny noises. Yep, they do. They seem to collect a lot of sort of junk and mm-hmm. droids, and they're little techie guys, and yeah. they're traders, and people have to buy from them out of necessity, but nobody actually likes them. All right. Uh, episode's over. Good job, Joanna. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's all you needed to know about Jawas. <laughs> no, they got a lot, though. Yeah, they're they're, they're the little rodent-like natives of tattooing. Rodent? I don't know if I go that far. They're well, that small. Well, no, they, they do the study of corpses and skeletal remains. Xenobiologists have found they have kind of rat-like skeleton, like their heads are like, they're actually little rodents. I love how they're so insistent on wearing hoods it took xenobiologists to tell us, like, yeah, their heads look like rats. Well, yeah, because, like, they don't take their robes off. That's <laughs> From studying remains, we had to find that out. Okay. Yeah, at all, fa- all times, their their faces remain obscured by a shroud of cloth. So that black you see yeah. of their face, that's actually a shroud of cloth to keep their face safe from the desert sands. It retains moisture and it hides their identity and dissipates their body heat. Okay. Those glowing eyes you see are actually polished orange gemstones. What? To protect their sensitive vision. They're basically like sunglasses. And their, their eyes do glow, but, like, you're seeing it through the lenses of their hoods. Are you serious? So what color do their eyes glow normally? Like, orange, yellow. Yeah, they're that color anyway. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah. that color anyway. Okay. Yeah, the only physical parts you ever see of Jawas are their hands. Yes. And you see they have little, like, little claws. They got little furry wrists. Right. And so we're not really sure what all the rest of them look like. No one's, there's no canonical version of a Jawa. So literally nobody has seen Jawas without their... Nobody's seen a naked Jawa I think ever. The, I think Jawas have, but... I mean, nobody ever, like, murdered a Jawa and was like, I'm really curious and, like, took their oh, clothes off. I'm sure off. they have, but there's no, like, canonical stories where that happens because that's perverted, okay? <laughs> I uh, would do it. I'd be like, what do these guys look like? Well, you also might want to get... I don't want to get too close to them because they're renowned for their incredibly potent odor. Okay. They, they stank. It's repulsive to most species because it creates an incredible amount of... Just sweat and grime. What does but, it smell like? Like, a, like an infected wound? Or well, you use Band-Aid? If you're a Jawa, it would actually smell like information because it contains stuff about their identity, their health, their clan lineage, 
their last meal, their maturity, arousal, and even their mood. Their arousal. You can smell it. So it's like how dogs sniff each other's butts. Yeah, Jawas have this smell that if you were a Jawa, it would smell like all that stuff. But to anyone else, it smells grody. And it's made even worse because they, they dip all their clothes in this mysterious solution <laughs> to retain moisture. And because in their view, even a bath was a waste of water. So they basically are gross all the time. Why don't they just get one of those suits like in Dune? Like a still re- suit? Yeah, just recycles all the I always thought still suits would smell kind of bad too, though. Like I mean, on the inside, yes, but not on the outside. Right. But yeah, they, they dip their clothes in this stuff. They smell bad already. It actually would attract insects into their recesses of their hoods. The re- Ew, don't say recess. But yeah, we're not really sure what Jawas look like. One thing they, there's a big theory about in the Star Wars universe, uh, it's not completely proven, but it's thought that they and Tusken Raiders had a common ancestor. Oh, okay. I always wondered about that, actually. A species called the Kamunga, who were like the native people of Tatooine. Kamunga. Kamunga. They live back on Tatooine because this is another stupid extended universe thing. Uh, Tatooine wasn't always a desert. Uh... It used to be a lush jungle world that was glassed into oblivion by an ancient race called the Rakata. But that's another story I for mean, another day. It's still strange credulity that an entire planet would have only one biome, but go on. Yes, but anyway, after it was glassed, the species split up into two groups and the Jawas are one of them. So Jawas are these little desert guys. As a result, they have to have a pretty high body temperature and fast metabolism. Their body temperature is 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Holy cannoli! Or 46 degrees Celsius if you're an international listener. And they have a really efficient digestive system, and it drew all the nutrients they needed from the food they ate the most, which was called a hubba gourd. Hubba hubba. So these little rodent dudes. Hubba bubba. Hubba bubba. That they just chewed hubba bubba. <laughs> yeah, that's why they have such weird voices. They chew gum all the time. Like you mentioned before, they're scavengers. Yeah. And Tatooine's a perfect planet to be a scavenger because that dry heat and the, the lack of moisture makes sure that most derelict things, technology, remains in pretty good shape. Yeah, right. So basically it's got to go out there and find it. Of course. Right? That's what Ray Ray does, too. Yeah. yeah Ray Ray's like a little Jawa She's out basically there. a Jawa. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their official motto of the Jawa species was, when you find something, you're not looking for uses for a salvage item, but to imagine someone else who might find a use for it. Okay. They're trying to find things they can they can sell. They're hustlers. They're swindlers. So they don't really care. I mean, like, presumably, occasionally, they do use some of the stuff they, they find for, like, their own homes. Well, almost certainly. Like, that's what the sand crawlers are, actually. Right. Sand crawlers were actually old mining equipments that were left behind. Oh, my gosh, really? Like, yeah, like a millennia ago. And the Jawas refurbished them and made them into homes that could drive around the desert and help them find garbage. That's pretty amu- amazing to yeah. like live in a, a moving home that's like a thousand years old. And they've kept it up all the time. All I the, like that. They have a fleet of sand crawlers. Each each uh, group has their own because they're split up by clans. Jawas live in clans led by a male clan chief. Ugh. Patriarchy. But Sexism. here's what you might like. Overall, the operation of the Jawa clan was overseen by a female shaman. Oh, really? This was a lady Jawa who became a shaman either by possessing some kind of force ability or by overcoming an illness accompanied by hallucinatory visions. <laughs> well, like dengue fever or yes. something? Or, okay. And once you became That's that, cool. you got to basically... Boss around the clan because so basically you just have to get you just have to get the flu yeah super bad get some fever dreams and then it's like so okay, you're, you're the boss now the force of the flu and you're now a shaman the force of the flu I didn't know Jawas could be force sensitive they can there's actually was a one in the Jedi Order they let them in even though they smelled so bad in the old Republic his name was Akial he was a force using Jawa. Maybe he didn't smell that bad because he, he wasn't living in the desert. He wouldn't have had to dip his clothes in whatever. Right. He was living on Pry and Coruscant with like, the Jedi Order. He's probably yes. taking regular baths and stuff. I hope. The Jawa society, when you know, they weren't in sand crawlers. They were in these big, high-walled desert fortresses. Yeah. We don't see them in the movies or even in like the, the comics usually either. But they're kind of hidden away. Only Jawas go there. And that's where like all the kid Jawas could grow up in safety before going out into the world because... That's a dangerous place, right? There's it's dangerous things out there. There's crate dragons, there's yeah. Tuscan raiders, sarlacc pits, all kinds of crazy now, stuff. Now, who is higher on the food chain in terms of, like, who's more likely to prey on who? Tuscan raiders or Jawas? Well, Jawas are actually pretty passive. Okay. They weren't ones to start fights. They're gotcha. usually ones to retreat and hide behind big walls, like their fortresses or their sand crawlers. Yeah. And so... Tuscan raiders, then. They were the, they were the grumpy, aggressive Would they have cousins. some reason to kill Jawas? What? What they had on them, you know? I don't know. All right, Okay. I mean, they usually rarely carried weapons. They mostly relied on ion blasters, which is what they used to shoot R2-D2. Okay. A New Hope. Basically, it's not going to damage him, but it's going to, like, 
short his circuits. Got it. They're ion cannons. So whenever just makes you like reboot or something. Yeah, whenever you see ion cannons in Star Wars, it's like to shut down a, sh- a ship's systems, not to actually destroy it necessarily. Because they got to sell those, right? They had kind of a, an affinity for technology, even though they didn't carry weapons. They were able to fix droids up really well. They actually created their own, what they called monster droids, which are just like basically the, the toys from uh, Sid's house and Toy Story, with like a bunch of like parts like, like together. Like a baby head on like a spider yeah, body. And... Whatever use they needed. They would make it for for the for the client. Here's a doll with a pterodactyl head. You need this <laughs> to mine your your moisture evaporators. <laughs> yeah, right? that's our only only tool for the job. Once a year, just before the storm season on Tatooine, all the Jawas would meet in the Dune Sea for a swap meet. Swap meets are fun. Yeah, they bring all their sand crawlers and put all their gear, and they would trade and hobnob and Jawas only. You know, this this big old flea market of, of crap that they would find. They would do, like, inter, inter-clan business. Yeah. For example, like, sharing navigational data about the desert. <coughs> and sometimes even planning arranged marriages between clan leaders. Wait, did they do arranged marriages? They did. Was that the, the, the cultural just, norm? This is some, some Jawa Game of Thrones stuff. Yeah, they had, like, a real, like, you know, a system here of, of bringing clans together through arranged marriages. Whoa. For cultural genetic diversity as well, of course, but, you know, to strengthen the clans course adhering to their scavenger instincts it was quite common for different family clans to trade their sons and daughters for marriage through an intense barter or trade agreement intense and they called this marriage merchandise oh i do not well i mean like you are kind of stripping away the facade because you know a lot of times when they did those arranged marriages for you know dowries or whatever what were you but merchandise right but still ooh. i don't know why wikipedia thought it'd be a good idea to add this in there some pervert but they the sentence after that is <laughs> Jawas found it acceptable to consummate their marriages in public. Thanks, perv. Thanks, pervert. That person, you know, they're getting so excited. They're like, I'm just imagining us on Tatooine, and I saw them consummate their marriage in public. Yeah, yeah. marriage merchandise. <laughs> Don't say it like that. Okay. Uh, Jawas speak a language called Jawaese, which you see in the movie. Yep. It's a highly variable language because not only were they speaking, but it also would communicate through their smell as well. Right. So there's all this kind of hidden meaning and stuff if you weren't a Jawa. And when they wanted to sell to a customer that wasn't a Jawa, they used a language called the Jawa trade language which is kind of a simplified version of it's like a, it's like pigeon jawa. right yeah p- pigeon jawa pigeon jawa um, can you imagine like the, how passive aggressive you could be like your your voice is saying like oh hi you know how's it going and yeah. your smell is saying screw you yeah, f off f off now thankfully you bitch <laughs> i wonder what a bitch smell smells what like. does a bitch smell smell like patchouli uh truly the truly the binchest of smells so after i did my hut episode i decided to buy that galactic phrase book and travel guide i talked about by ben burt the sound guy from star wars and there actually is a whole chapter in here about jawa language awesome and so uh do you want to learn some jawa ease yeah please okay this this is the jawa this is the trade language so it's going to be a little simplified for us human ears and keep in mind when jawa speak they speak very quickly yeah it's expected you're able to say these things like Twice in five seconds. And that's how fast we're talking. But we don't. Okay. We're gonna go slow because we're not both natural Jawas. We haven't right. warmed our tongues up. It's not we my haven't. Tongue. We haven't done tongue speed enhancers like they recommend in this book. Okay. Pretend we're a Jawa. Okay. And we're talking to a customer. Mamalu. Mamalu. That means greetings or hello. Mamalu. Mamalu. Iti uwanawa. Iti uwanawa. Iti uwanawa. That means I want to trade. Okay. Go mabanlu. Go mabalu. How much for this? Pick up like a droid head or something. Like, how much for this? Yusuku Kenzakina. Yusuku Kenzakina. Let's make a deal. Let's make a deal. I want. I want you to. I'm gonna buy this droid head. Yeah. Shumanis un tonipa. Shumanis un tonipa. Show me the credits. And so the human show me the money. Starts putting out the credits, and you're counting them as you go. So you're gonna count in Jawaese here. Yeah. Po. Po. Ko. Ko. Kyo. Kyo. Yo. Yo. Dio. Dio. Leo. Leo. We're going to pause because there's no seven in Jawa arithmetic. What? Why is there no seven? I don't know. This That's is... a bizarre... What could possibly be... Maybe it's like so bad luck or something? I think it might be. Such bad luck you can't say anyway, it. Anyway, let's move on to eight. Okay. Ho. Ho. To. To. Kisewa. Kisewa. Now he's pulling out the big bills. We're going to a hundred now. Gakisewa. Gakisewa. He's got ten of them now. There's a thousand credits here. Hakisewa. Hakisewa. He just dumps out the whole bag of credits on the table. It's Jojo Muma. Jojo Muma. It's a hundred million credits. So you as a Jawa, you're a greedy little guy. Yeah. You take that whole pile and you roll it off the table into your bag. And you say, Abeta nya mome boa. 
A bit of yam will we boire. This is mine, all mine. <laughs> okay. Wow. And he run away yelling, Ubenya. Ubenya. Goodbye, goodbye. Utini. Utini. Which you hear all the time it means wow. It's like kind of like celebration sound. Utini. Oh, that's what it means? We just stole 100 million credits off a jerk. Ha ha. I mean, did they, hopefully they actually gave you something in exchange, a good or a service. We gave them nothing. All right. We ripped them off. Jawa power. That's, that's, that's some Jawa. That's so funny. Jawa ease, yeah. A funny fact I read in this book as well is that Jawas measure distance by the size of their clan. Okay. As before they had sand crawlers, they marched through the desert in a single file line. Their entire clan, which is very cute. So and cute. the length of the entire clan from the first <coughs> Jawa to the last Jawa was called a Kuba. Kuba. And so like if a you, cubit. Exactly. And so a Kuba obviously is gonna vary wildly depending on the size of your clan. Yes. So if a Jawa gives you directions in Kubas, don't God. don't use those directions because Finally somebody found a measurement system that's like more useless than the imperial system. And that's Kubas. Kubas. Another fun fact before we wrap up our Jawa history here is that sometime after the Battle of Endor, a group of 480 Jawas was transported to Endor as part of a privately funded expedition to salvage valuable hardware from the wreckage of the Death Star. Oh. They reportedly mutinied, forming a roving bandit gang that preyed upon any visitors to the moon. <laughs> Why did they think that would work? <laughs> Jawas are awesome. Why on earth? Did they get along with the Ewoks? Ah, they're both little guys. I imagine they would stick together. Of course, you have to. If somebody's your same height, you have to get along with them. Yeah. Those are some Jawa facts and fun things you can learn about them. Uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff. The Jawa ease we just talked about, Ben Burt was inspired by the Zulu language okay. of Africa. Yeah. And so he recorded the lines in Zulu and then sped them up. Oh. To make that high-pitched Jawa talking. Cool. So wait, so the, that those phrases in there? Are they well, actually... they're based on Zulu. He went with like, he kind of like roughly translated them, kind of changed around some of the sounds and okay, stuff. Okay, cool. But he liked the rhythm and the and the cadence of Zulu. And he thought it'd be fun to have that be language in Star Wars. That's and so. so fascinating. Isn't that cool? And the Jawas in A New Hope, they were played by mostly kids, local oh. Tunisian kids. Oh, cool. And a couple of them are actually kids of people who worked on the movie, like Gary Kurtz's daughter, Tiffany. Yeah. Gary Kurtz is the producer of Star Wars. He was on set. His daughter, Tiffany, played the one that got to shoot R2-D2 with a gun. Oh, lucky. His, her name was Dothcha, apparently. Dothcha. That was the, the Jawa's name, Dothcha. Dothcha. There's a picture Man. of this from the kids dressed as Jawas with Anthony <gasps> Daniels. Oh, that's so cute. What a fun job that would be, right? Like That would be the bet. It's like being um, one of the orcs extras in Lord of the Rings, which like, I think literally every single person in New Zealand got to do. Yeah, yeah. That is so... I hope those kids were okay, though, because it must have been hot. Well, I remember reading in my behind my, my Art of Star Wars book, we talked about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, and they said the kids were loving it. They, they didn't care how hot it was. They oh, were, yeah? They weren't around playing Jawa, even when they weren't on scene. That's awesome. Yeah, so they, they really had a good time. In episode two, when Obi-Wan goes to Dex's diner, to ask about the Kamino and Saber die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He offers him Jawa juice, and Obi-Wan says, no, thank you. Just to be clear, that's juice that's not made of Jawas. Okay. It's not made for Jawas either. They don't like it. They don't drink it. Okay. It's just fermented fruit juice with a dash of delicious banthahyde. So don't worry. No Jawas are hurt in the making of... I'm glad because I was trying to think, okay, what Jawa fluid? What are they putting in here? Right. It's not made of Jawas. Best case scenario, tears. That was like literally the best case scenario. So don't worry, guys. I mean, you talk about Jawa juice. No Jawas were harmed in the making of it. Okay. Good to know. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. That's One last stupid fact from the real world section of the Jawa article. It talked about how in 1978, when Neil Young went on tour, he brought these roadies on stage with him in, in hooded outfits with glowing eyes, which he called road eyes instead of roadies. And 20th Century Fox did not like this. Because they thought he was deliberately... It was literally a year after Star Wars. Oh, so yeah, it's pretty close And then. they come out, they came out and like helped them set up the stage and were like muttering to themselves in like Jawa language. That's so weird because I would not expect a Star Wars reference in like a Neil Young concert. Right. He's not like a super... He doesn't have like a sci-fi aesthetic I know, at all. I know, But you have these Jawas set up like fake amps and stuff like that. Okay. So 20th Century Fox sued him and they settled out of court. Oh no! So... But you can still see them on the oh. cover of his Russ Never Sleeps album cover. So, Well, you know, presumably he paid a lot of money to be able to do that Definitely. after the fact. So, yeah, so, yeah that's Jawas. That uh, was cute. Yeah, they're fun. I like that. I love Jawas. They're so they're, they're ridiculous. I like their language. Anytime you talk about the languages stuff, like, that's so neat Well, there's lots me. in this book. We got Gungan in here. We got um, Sand Person in here. We got Droid Speak in here. Awesome. We got 
a Wookiee. We got the Shree Wookiee here. We got some Ewok language. I can't so. wait to learn more about that stuff. And I'm definitely going to do an episode on languages. All right. Cool. That's probably more than one. But cool. I just have to think of a way to present it in a like interesting and comprehensible way. Well, I'll save some of these for that then. Okay, we sweet. We can share languages on that episode. But that's not what I'm doing next week. Do you know what I'm doing next week? What's that? Hobbits. Hobbits. Finally, my favorite. Very good. Indisputably my favorite. I love Hobbits. I already did Ewoks, so darn. I mean, we already decided that Hobbits are Ewoks, and so, hmm, I gotta think up with something better. Don't worry about it. It doesn't always have to match. I want it to. All right. Cool. Well, that's it for this week. Yeah, we, we probably have one more fact for you each from our respective wikis, but before that... We need to plug ourselves a little bit. If you liked what you heard today, you can up us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you find podcasts. Leave a review and let us know if you liked it. You can also email us your questions, comments, concerns, vague accusations at whatslightsabersprecious at gmail.com. Keep them vague. We haven't gotten any in a while. It's been a long time since we had any questions. You might notice there's no audience questions section on this podcast well don't be, say that be the change you want to see in the world <laughs> yes please sign our change.org petition <laughs> change.org e- email us more we're not actually raising yeah we're not we're not raising money we're on gofundme but the, the funds are questions yes they're not money uh, also you can check us out online www.whatslightsabersprecious.com Yep. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. If you just search What's Lightsabers Precious, we will come up. If you like the social media thing. Yeah, I don't, but if you do. <laughs> Ryan doesn't. Ryan hates it. But if you like it, yeah, we are on there, and we do that for your benefit. If you like Ewoks and want to hear more about Jawas, RPG buddies, once a week, usually Mondays or Wednesdays or some other time... <laughs> Joanna, I mean, we have the backlog on there, so... Joanna plays an Ewok, our friend plays a Jawa. It's fun stuff. So do you have your last fact on your random page of Arda? Oh, I'm about to hit it. I'm about to hit it, too. I'm about to hit it and then quit it. All right, let's hear yours first. Great Middle Haven. Tell us about Great Middle Haven real quick. There are an awful lot of words in here that are going to be nothing to nobody, but let me read this, this to you. This best, give me this best, best fact. All right, the best fact about Great Middle Haven, which is an elvish harbor is that it was founded by Isildur's brother as the first permanent Numenorean settlement on the shores of Middle-earth. Very good fact. And it was 6,000 years old by the time of the War of the Ring. I got a really good article here. It's in the Real World Articles section. It's in the Wikipedia Featured Articles section. It's in the Deceased Actors section. And the Star Wars Holiday Special Actors section. Oh, my favorite! Bea Arthur was an American actress known for her deep voice and sharp delivery of comedic lines. She gained fame acting on Broadway and television and in films throughout her long career. I'm sorry. Wikipedia has an article on Bea Arthur? Because she played Akmina in the Star Wars Holiday Special. <laughs> yeah, but why don't they just have an article on Akmina? They have that too. Okay. They're separate article. I mean, I, we've mentioned that that role of B. Arthur's like a couple times in this podcast. I just, I, I now I want to tell you more about B. B. Arthur. All right, <laughs> thank you for being a friend, B. Arthur. You're welcome. All right, guys, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. All right, see you. Bye. Bye.